Throughout his papacy, blessed John Paul II called us to be not afraid. His call will be with us forever because he lived that deep trust in God's mercy all his life from the beginning to the end. Today we'll explore John Paul II's legacy of hope with our special guest, George Weigel, as we discuss his book, The End and the Beginning, the concluding volume of his two-volume biography of Pope John Paul II that began with Witness to Hope. I'm Father Michael Scanlon, Chancellor of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. talking about the achievement of blessed John Paul II, an exciting venture to look into this life and all the ways he's blessed us. We have our regular panelists here, Dr. Regis Martin, professor of systematic theology, Dr. Scott Hahn, professor of biblical theology, and welcome back to George Weigel, who's been with us before and has enriched us so greatly. George is a distinguished senior fellow of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and one of the world's leading authorities on the Catholic Church. And you're also the uh, Vatican analyst for NBC News, which puts you right in the middle of it all. And you're the author of 15 books, including the New York Times bestseller, Witness to Hope, the biography of John Paul II, which we've had and discussed on this program before. And uh, today we'll be talking about his newest book, The End and Beginning, Pope John Paul II, The Victory of Freedom, The Last Years, The Legacy, which is the sequel to and completion of Witness to Hope and concludes George Weigel's two-volume biography of Pope John Paul II. That gets that done, George. Now we get into it. Um, in your new book, you've revealed new facts about Pope John Paul II in resistance, you know, to the, both the Nazi and the Soviet systems. Uh, how did he resist? How did he accomplish this? Because we didn't hear too much about that in much earlier times. Uh, Father, what I've come into possession of in recent years are some previously classified materials from the secret police files of the Polish secret police, the East German Stasi, the KGB, uh. Hungarian Secret Intelligence Service, which have allowed me to revisit the whole uh, issue of Wojtyla, Karol Wojtyla, who became Pope John Paul II, versus communism over a period of some 30 years wow. through a very different kind of microscope this time. Yeah. This is the, the bad guy's view of this guy <laughs> and what he did to match uh, their deviltry, and it was deviltry. I mean, there was some very dramatic and in some respects nasty stuff uh, that is presented in this book for the first time. The that short answer... This is, these are the Soviets yes. we're talking about here. Um, the short answer to your question is that his resistance was based on the idea 
that truth is stronger than falsehood. And that the truth wow. deployed winsomely enough and forcefully enough can cut through the static of even the harshest and hardest lies. That's what he deployed for 30 years. Harshest and hardest? Hardest lies. Lies, like L-I-E-S. L-I-E-S. Lies, that's what we're talking about here, confronting that. That's good. Why did he think that cultural resistance would work so well? You know, I mean, usually you look at the other arenas and you see them moving to armed resistance and things so quickly, but he put a lot of stock on what could happen through cultural resistance. I think there were several things behind that. He knew as a Polish patriot that the Polish nation had survived the loss of the Polish state. Between 1795 and 1918, there was nothing yeah. called Poland. Yeah. But the nation had survived through its culture, through its yeah. literature, its language, its faith. So he had a confidence in the capacity of culture to bend history. Mm in a more humane direction. The other blunt fact of the matter, of course, is that between 1945 and 1989, the bad guys had all the hardware. Yeah. So they, the only tools that were available were, if you, were, if you will, uh, software uh, tools. But there was also a Christian motivation here, and I think we need to underscore that. He really believed that uh, Christian witness, a solid, unapologetic, forthright, uncompromising presentation of the moral truths of Christian faith would win out over time. And that if you formed a critical mass of people in that truth, they would have tools of resistance that the guys with all the hardware simply couldn't match. The hardware would in some sense melt away under the power of this uh, the polls, truth force. The polls were key players in this then. I mean, it wasn't just someone who could stand up and speak winsomely and powerfully the truth. It's somebody who was from Poland, who returned to Poland, where the people really were in a position to play not a secondary role, but really something crucial. You know, the, the thing that uh, sustained him, I, I think, was his courage. Not, not just vision, knowing what might happen, the possibilities of history, you know, the cunning corridors of the past that Eliot speaks of, but a courage uh, about, about himself. I mean, you mentioned that World War II was the formative experience right. uh, and the humiliation men experienced at the hands of organized systemic evil could have pushed him in a different direction. He could have despaired. He could have gone mad. He could have become cynical like so many of his countrymen. But instead, he deepened his commitment to Christ. He solidified his witness to the absolute dignity of the human person. And that's what, up, uh, that's what upheld him and sustained the West. I think there was a cruciform shape to this, if yes. you will. Uh, it was not an accident that Uh, John of the Cross was one of his spiritual fathers. Uh, And I would say what he learned from a conforming of himself to that cross-centered, Carmelite way of of being a Christian was not to live without fear, but to live beyond fear. Because all of the world's fear had been taken to Calvary by the Son of God and in a sense immolated in the perfect sacrifice. That's where you are empowered, not to live without fear, but to live beyond fear. 
So you're really saying we have to look at it two ways. Yes, he was a cultural revolutionary, but he was doing it out of his priestly vocation and his sense of call, and that's an unusual blend these days. Exactly right, Father. I mean, everything, I'd even push it back a step before that. Everything that this man did as a priest, a philosopher, a bishop, uh, a father of the Second Vatican Council, uh, and Pope, grew out of his radical conversion to Christ, grew out of this radical discipleship. That's what formed, uh, as Dr. Martin said, in those crucible years of the Second World War. He was seized by what St. Paul calls the more excellent way, and he decided to spend out his life offering the possibility of that encounter to others. So everything grows from that. And that, I think it's important to emphasize that uh, because we now look on him as such an exemplar that he can drift away a little bit. This is is too good to be true. It's certainly too good for me to be. That discipleship is his connection with us. Right. Because we all have that possibility. And one thing that puts it a little more in perspective is, as you write, well, the Soviet Union and the enemies considered the Catholic Church an enemy. Yeah. Oh, without doubt. And this very much put him on the enemy soil from the point of view of of the communists, and therefore, uh, you know, the striking back and the being forceful action. I think it's it's very difficult for people today. We're now 20-some years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, almost 20 years from the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, People forget what this was like. Mm -hmm. This was all war all the time. It was, this was not something where you were going to find a 50-yard line where everybody was going to live happily together ever after. Somebody was going to win and somebody was going to lose. And it was that way because you had fundamentally different views yep, yep. of the human person, human community, and human yep. destiny in conflict. Right. Th- I mean, th- there's a sense in which uh, the, the enemy, the Soviets, uh, the communist uh, apparatus, they did target the right guy. They knew their enemy. I mean, John Paul II, Karol Vatiwa, he had to be demonized uh, because he was the most obvious and profound threat uh, to the culture of of lies, and and you're right. It's something available to all of us. The radicality of his attachment to Christ that was the source of his strength. He sort of turned Stalin's dismissal, uh, his jibe on its head. How many divisions yeah. does the Pope have? Well, if he's harnessed to Christ infinite numbers uh, and and that formidable uh, strength he represented, he was he was courageous and clever enough to deploy to the advantage of, uh, of faith. You know, the, uh, one of the most powerful columns written after the Pope died in 2005 uh, was written the week after his death by my friend Charles Krauthammer, who is Jewish yeah. and who picked up on that Stalin line and how many divisions yes. has the Pope, and Charles answered the question and said, more than enough, <laughs> more than you could right. imagine. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Do you think that the yeah. Soviets underrated? I mean, he was underrated at first. No, no. They knew I, right no. off. I think, I mean, a part of the documentation, the new documentation in the end of the beginning is a memorandum that uh, 
Yuri Andropov, the head of the KGB, had ordered up an analytic memorandum uh, de detailing why this was supremely bad news for them, and not wow. simply in Poland. Yeah. It was bad news because of Lithuania and Ukraine, yeah. two places where the Catholic Church was the repository of a national identity that the Soviet state had tried to stamp out for decades. So they were caught off guard by the election, like everybody else. Yes. But they knew, in some ways, before a lot of other people knew, what kind of figure was emerging what kind of person would be on the chair. But I, I think it, it could be argued that early on they sort of missed the boat. Uh, they looked on this guy as an intellectual. He traffics in ideas, and for God's sake, he's a poet. Uh, how, can, how can he be a threat to Soviet hegemony? Let the guy become a bishop. But it's only later, when you realize the sort of bishop he had become, that he poses a direct threat to uh, this Soviet uh, system. No, Regis is right about that. I mean, the, yeah. the story of his becoming Archbishop of Krakow is fabulous uh, because they thought they were getting this airhead right. that right. they could yeah. manipulate. Some professor. Some yeah. professor, right. pardon me, uh, <laughs> yeah. even a theologian of sorts. <laughs> Um, and, and yet he turns into this remarkably gifted defender of the human rights of all. One of his old priest friends in Krakow reflecting on that business, let's get the airhead and then it turns yeah. on him, by saying it was a marvelous example of how the Holy Spirit can work by darkening men's minds right. as well as like, lightning. Yeah. Like Caiaphas, the high priest, <laughs> prophesying. Now, in your book, you actually you present that the, that the Soviets, however, knew some danger of Vatican II and wanted to infiltrate and influence these things. They saw the Second Vatican, viewed from the perspective of the KGB, yeah. the Second Vatican Council was a golden opportunity right. to make mischief. Yeah. And it's not uh. mischief in the sense that that they were uh, manipulating uh, the theological direction of right, the council. Right. It was mischief in the sense of placing agents of influence, uh, attempting to discredit people. I have this fantastic story in here of a fake memorandum suggesting that Cardinal Wyszynski, the primate of Poland, had a heterodox Marian piety. <laughs> that was right. accepted as real right. by yeah, many right. bishops and certainly by the press. So it's that kind of mischief-making right, that right. they were doing. Yeah. But you, you even uh, allege, and it's one of the more shocking uh, revelations of your book, that, that the Hungarian uh, uh, congregation to the Vatican, bishops and theologians, more than half of these guys you could call Soviet agents. Yeah, it's wow. a very sad story. The the uh, the Ostpolitik, the yeah. new Eastern politics of the Vatican under Paul VI, thought it had achieved something of a breakthrough in Hungary, yeah. and what it had achieved was, uh, in effect, the hung the leadership of the Hungarian Church becoming a subsidiary of the Hungarian Communist Party. Very, very well, sad business. Well, we want to investigate that further in some of the formative years, but mostly near the, near the end of his life and what he was able to accomplish in those last years. Stay with us. In many ways, we encounter a large number of our students here as what we refer to as the JP2 generation. They were impacted by his World Youth Day encounters, by even his theology of the body. 
I'm in many ways here because so many of them have responded to his call for the new evangelization and request to be trained in the catechetical ministries. Interestingly, our formation of catechists at Franciscan University is founded on the writings of John Paul II in catechesis. He wrote on catechesis in our time where we referred to at the heart of catechesis we find the person of Jesus Christ and that the definitive aim of catechesis is to put people in touch, communion and intimacy with Jesus Christ. I often refer to Franciscan University as the worldwide headquarters of the JP2 fan club, but it is the case that John Paul put them in touch with Jesus Christ and that they come here as disciples of Jesus desiring to be formed to make other disciples as well. This university is different because um, not only, it's going to sound cliche, but that academically challenging, passionately Catholic, like it's not a lie. It's, it's an it's a academically prestigious school, but it has this Catholic environment that is unlike anything else I've ever seen or experienced firsthand. Priests are very available um, to hear confessions in just spiritual direction, you know, do the sacraments. Franciscan University is academically challenging and passionately Catholic. Talking about the achievements of Blessed John Paul II with our special guest, George Weigel. And we're in this fascinating point of how he occupied such an important place on the international scene, on indeed the uh, power struggle that was going on involving the Soviets. And uh, how did he get prepared in his early years to, to step out there and know what he was talking about and what would, could, could really make a difference? Uh, he was not, as I came to know him over almost two decades, a man given naturally to raising his voice. He had to learn how to raise his voice. <laughs> yeah. uh, but when he became the Archbishop of Krakow <laughs> and understood that part of his responsibility was certainly to defend the rights of the church and the rights of Catholics, but also to become a voice for all of the socially and politically voiceless in oh. Poland, whether they were Catholics or not, he learned how to raise his voice. Yeah. I mean, he learned how to be a compelling public personality. When he came to Rome, he had been for 20 years one of the most dynamic and effective bishops in the church. And not as a matter of pride, but as a matter of knowing what he was good at and what he wasn't so good at, uh, I think he thought he knew how to be a bishop. Yeah. And he was now the Bishop of Rome instead of the Archbishop of Krakow, but you're still a bishop. Right. So yeah. this simply got transformed onto a larger stage, but the man was the same, yeah. and the tools he deployed, the tools he used were the same, yeah. and the message was the same. Yeah. He didn't think he had to recalibrate all oh. this simply because he was the Pope. So it, there was it, no basic right turn or something when he was elected pope. Oh, he kept doing he exactly right. what right. he had been doing. Right. He was of a piece and very different, I, I think, from his predecessor, uh, Paul, Pope Paul VI, who was uh, sort of neurotic, uh, frightened, uh, uh, who, terrified, who was terrified at the prospect of, of, of being pope and, and who just had a difficult time making decisions he and, was and remaining man, resolute about He them. was a man from inside the system. Yes. Uh, with many great 
human and spiritual qualities, but he was a man of the system. So when the system began to resist him, things would get difficult. This was a man who was a pastor. Yeah. He was not a chancery rat. Right. He was not a guy who had spent his life in right. the Roman Curia. Yeah. He was a pastor yeah. who, even as the Archbishop of Krakow, spent an enormous amount of time out in the parishes, working in a university, directing doctoral dissertations, visiting sick people. He was a pastor. But this, this Oost politique that, yeah. that preceded Paul VI, didn't it? It doesn't go bit. back to the, the 50s. No, it goes back to John XXIII. John XXIII. Well, in that, so, so in that sense, yeah. the, you know, the late 50s, but right. it really begins to pick up in uh, the years immediately before the Second Vatican Council. Yeah. And then there is this coincidence, which I think is entirely insufficiently noted. And that is that the Second Vatican Council coincided, the beginning of the Second Vatican Council, October 1962, yeah. coincided with the Cuban Missile that's Crisis. Right, that's right. Wow. So here's John XXIII, yeah. who's been working since 59 to prepare this council, and suddenly the whole world's about to blow up. Right, yeah. yeah. That coincidence, I think, created a sense that the church ought to try to position itself to perhaps be an, a mediator were something like this to happen again, but should certainly try to find openings behind the Iron Curtain. Now, I mean, it turns out that was fine with the bad guys because they saw that as, as an opportunity right. to penetrate the church, right. which yeah. they proceeded to do with yeah. considerable skill, uh, although not to great effect, except in certain cases like the Hungarian one. Right. We discussed uh, right. a moment ago. Yeah, your treatment of this, I, I think, is really fascinating. Uh, and what emerges from this uh, event that, that proved so convulsive, the Cuban Missile Crisis, is really uh, the whole policy, the diplomatic posture of, of turning to the East uh, and uh, advancing this notion of uh, trying to keep the church alive or preventing the church from dying. Uh, modus non moriendi, and the great champion of that is Casseroli. Right. And it really is a council of despair, mm -hmm. an invitation to give up, you know, a fede complete. Right. Let's just fall down and accept the Alta system, the status quo. Let's not disturb uh, too many, too many people. Why is that despair, though? That's fairly well, strong. Well, it, it's not, a, it's not expansive. It's <laughs> not ambitious. Yeah. It's not evangelical. It okay. doesn't aim to penetrate the East, but to just sort of acquiesce uh, in the circumstances that Yalta imposed. Socialism is with us forever. We can't change these structures. I mean, that, that it seems to me, is defeatism. I knew Cardinal Casseroli at the end of his life, and I have to say he was a thoroughly engaging man, highly intelligent, very, very shrewd uh, politically. But he was made for a different century, I think. Uh -huh. You could imagine Casseroli in the role of Consalvi at yeah, the Council right. of, at the Congress of Vienna, right. and he would have done a terrific job right. for Pius VII, as yeah. Consalvi did for uh, uh, Pius VII in, in those days. But I don't think Casseroli ever grasped yeah. the ideological nettle here, yeah. that this was the kind of conflict I described it as a moment yeah. ago, that this was fundamentally a clash of ideas yeah. uh, on which there was not going to be a compromise uh, resolution. Uh, I think he thought of this as another great power right. squabble right. in which right. the church had to find its way. Uh, 
Um, that was a mistake, I think right. one has to say. Yeah. That was a misread of the situation. Uh, but one also has to say that it was extremely shrewd of John Paul II yeah. to choose this man yeah. to be his Cardinal Secretary of State. Mm -hmm. Because while Casseroli proceeded down the conventional diplomatic track, yeah. Yeah. thus taking away from the Soviets and others the possible claim that you're reneging on your agreement right. there, you're right. reneging on yeah. the deal, we agreed to be dialogical and now you're being confrontational. Casseroli pursued that, and that created a kind of space yeah. in which John Paul II could go right over the heads of these guys yeah. and make appeals to the people of these uh, oppressed and countries. And then how, how did the great jubilee play, play into all this as an opportunity I for think the Pope he, to lead? He, uh, Father, always said that the jubilee of 2000 was the key, that was his word, yeah to the entire pontificate. And I think what he meant by that was that he understood the Second Vatican Council to be a spirit-inspired moment preparing the church for what? For a new springtime of evangelization at the beginning of the third millennium of Christian history. And the gate between that preparation yeah. and the third millennium was the great jubilee of 2000, yeah. which he did not imagine as some sort of colossal global birthday party for Jesus, right. Right. <laughs> but as a way to sum up all of the energy of the yeah. great renaissance of Catholic life in yeah. the 20th century, yeah. and then to focus that in, a, in an evangelical yeah. and missionary thrust heading through the threshold of the third millennium. Yeah. And, and of course, uh, the announcement of, of the coming Jubilee, much as uh, the announcement of all these World Youth Days, it was always received with a certain measured skepticism, misgiving, which, which by, these, unmeasured. by these, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <by> these <laughs> curial <laughs> guys. Uh, I mean, you, know, you really don't want to try to do this, Holy Father. This is over the top. And, and Casseroli strikes me as a very symbol, you know, as a symbolic figure of, of this institutionalized resistance. I mean, on, on two fronts in particular, and you throw a wonderful light on this matter, communism, uh, he and, and Reagan did not see eye to eye on the threat of communism, but, but the Pope and Reagan did. They understood communism yeah. as something evil, <laughs> and it needs to be defeated. Uh, it's not something we have to put up with or, or submit to or negotiate deals with. We simply destroy it. it it's going to end. It's wow. wrong. It's pernicious. Yeah. And the other, the other theme is that of young people. I mean, I was really struck by the comment you made that Casseroli made in conversation with President Reagan. He said, look, these young people, they're insensible to God. They have no hunger for transcendence. And yet the Holy Father seized upon this hunger and was able to market it, exploit <laughs> it, and turn it to grace. I never heard of marketing it before, but nevertheless, I mean, it has a I mean, certain missed the, the boat. Nobody missed the boat. Yes. Well, I think yeah. one of, of all of the remarkable new documents that I've come into possession of since Witness to Hope, 
the transcript of that lunch at the White House uh -huh. in December 81. Oh. There's been martial law declared in Poland yeah. two days before. Wow. Cardinal Casseroli happens to be in, in the United States. President Reagan invites him to lunch. There are 20 people. Uh, everybody of any consequence in the U.S. national security establishment, yeah. Casseroli, the nuncio or apostolic delegate, as he then was, uh, Pio Laghi, and a couple of his guys. Now, the burden of the conversation, two days after martial law is declared in Poland, yeah. is carried, as you can imagine, by Reagan and Casseroli. Who is the voice of John Paul II? Reagan. <laughs> right. yeah. Who is the voice of diplomatic calm and let's yeah. not get right. bent out of shape yeah. and this will work itself out? Yeah. It was Cardinal Casseroli. It's an astonishing it transcript. It is astonishing. Yeah. And, and some of the more recent programs on Reagan have indicated this tremendous congruency yeah. between John Paul II and, and President Reagan at a time when the world wouldn't have been ready to know how you know, how close they were. In talking about the Great Jubilee, it strikes me that the 90s was sort of an unexpected period of transition, not only externally with the collapse of the Soviet Union by nine, you know, 92, but also with the, 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 the disintegration of dissent within the church. Mm -hmm. you, you have the catechism, you have uh, Veritatis Splendor and Evangelium Vitae. You really have not authoritarian enactments of excommunications, but a constructive sort of momentum shift that happens as a kind of quiet revolution within the church while all of this is taking place outside of the church. You know, here's the question, and it's, I know it's not scripted, but I want to throw it at you anyway. After the Great Jubilee, 9-11, 2001, the Soviet Union's gone. You know, all of the conventional enemies. And now the church faces Islam. And I know you've yes. written about this, but I don't think John Paul had the base of experience to understand this the way he did Soviet communism and the ideology, the evil of that. Who in the church is going to build on his legacy yeah. and address that with the same kind of profundity and serenity, and the you, compelling and, you and winsome refer to the fact that he did go to the Grand Mosque and there was this overture made by John Paul II at the time. I, perhaps we can come back to this uh, yeah. since we're going to be heading into a break shortly. Yeah. Let, me, let me just say, first of all, right now, uh, Pope clearly understood the fundamental theological differences between Catholicism and Islam. I do not think he grasped the nature of the jihadist Islamist yeah. project uh, as clearly as he had grasped the nettle of the communist project. But what he did understand was that he was uniquely positioned to take the this is a religious war card away from bin Laden and al-Qaeda. Right. And that's what he bent his energies towards doing, which was no small thing. Well, we will come back to that because there's a lot there with Islam and all that the Pope led us through. Stay with us. I remember when I was a junior in high school, I had the opportunity to travel to Rome with my Latin class. And uh, during that occasion, I had the opportunity to be uh, present at the Stations of the Cross on Good Friday at the Colosseum and also the Easter Mass on Easter Sunday in St. Peter's Square. For me it was the first encounter I really had with the Pope to make it personal for me. Before that I think 
as with many young people, it was just a picture on the apostolic blessing that somebody gave to my parents in the basement. But uh, here we had the opportunity to, to see him, uh, and I was uh, impacted by that personal encounter with him. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy. And you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu pilgrimages. Franciscan University talking about the achievements of John Paul II. We're here with our students all around us working the equipment and George Weigelbach, who we've had a number of times, who's the author of The End and the Beginning, John Paul II, The Victory of Freedom, The Last Years, The Legacy. Oh, it really takes perspective to get all this thing lined up right. And we're talking as we broke about Islam. You know, and um, the surprising intervention the Pope made about is Islam in Rome and uh, how things started to unravel uh, then. Give us a little perspective on that one as we go forward because that's a tough nut. Yeah. Scott was uh, quite rightly mentioning the 90s as a transition period. Uh, and I think the one thing I would add to the list of, of things that happened that you mentioned was uh, Fides et Ratio, the encyclical on faith and reason of 1998, which I think expressed John Paul II's view that this is the next cultural battle that has to be fought. has to be fought against postmodernism, against moral yeah. relativism, in favor of the capacity of reason to get at the truth of things, right. including the moral truth of things. And I think that that's a battle he was well equipped to play a significant role in, uh, and indeed do so. But then, you know, around the corner, as if from nowhere, came 9-11. Uh, uh, and that was not expected, I think, in the Holy Spirit. 9-11, yeah. real shocker. And uh, I think it took everyone a while to get a grip on, you know, is this a one-off deal? Is this right. part of a broader, uh, you know, global contest with people uh, without scruples who were prepared to murder uh, in the name of God? So the first thing that John Paul II wanted to do was take away the possibility of the other side having the sole claim that this is a religious war. He said, no, this is not a religious oh. war. I mean, if you people right. think you're acting in the name of God, you're not. Right. And right. Uh, the prayer he offered at the general audience uh, immediately after 9-11, uh, I believe the day after 9-11, uh, very quietly but unmistakably said, this kind of mass murder cannot be of the will of God. No. Now, the question is, who picks this up in the church today? Well, I think the present pope, Benedict right. XVI, Regis did in this much misunderstood and much maligned, and in my view, utterly brilliant Regensburg lecture, mm -hmm. in which he said, 
we've got a problem here. The problem is the disconnect of reason from faith. Yeah. And therefore, we need to focus in our dialogue and in our interreligious dialogue on getting those two things back together. And we need to focus on practical reason issues. Right. We need to focus on religious freedom as a human right that can be known by reason and therefore everybody can know it. And we need to focus on the necessary distinction between spiritual and political authority right, yeah. in the state. That's what we can talk about for the next 200 years. Right, 400 right. years from now, right, right. with Islam, we can talk about the Trinity, the Incarnation, right. the exegesis of the Quran, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right now, we got to get these two things right, settled. Yeah. And he has remained, I think, firmly uh, focused on yep. those two issues. But and the, Pope, the ones that have to be. Addressed. Yeah, Pope Benedict also, I think, rightly identified the source of this disconnect between reason and faith at the heart of the theology of Islam, its refusal uh, to emerge out of a logos tradition, its insistence upon the supremacy of will uh, in God, not reason, not noose, not ratio. So what's the effect of that? Why is that so? Well, power, uh, it, yeah. it, gets the, it gets the heart of the mystery of power, law, and freedom. You know, you have, you, it's too complicated to do for a, you know, a simplify a show, but the fact is you have in our tradition a notion that the divine intellect is the source of law because God knows us and he knows our nature and he, and he loves us with his will. And so law comes from divine power, but also from divine intellect. There's a break in Islamic thought. Philosophically, you have an elevation of the divine will. You can characterize this as voluntaristic, nominalistic, the way that Regensburg does, uh, Pope Benedict does it in this address. But at the end of the day, you have a difference of religions. One is a religion of divine fatherhood and sonship. Another one is a, a religion of divine slavery. And he didn't characterize it that way, but I don't think it's inaccurate right. to differentiate these two because the source of law and the source of freedom are profoundly divergent. Right. Yeah. The, the notion that God can command yeah. what is objectively wicked and evil yeah. because God is pure will, and therefore right. God could have written the Ten Commandments exactly yeah. backwards. Murder can be meritorious. Yeah, uh, this is a real problem. I mean, this is an idea with consequences, one of which turned out to be a huge hole at the bottom of Manhattan yeah. and about 3,000 people yes. dead in the process. Right. Yeah. So while it is true that all really great arguments in the human condition are ultimately theological, how do we think of God or not think of God, uh, I think the Pope was right, having pointed that out, to suggest we're not going to get that settled at right. the moment. Right, right. But let's focus on practical reason questions that we might be able to get settled. Now, I have to say, I don't think this has gotten very far. Uh, shortly before Egypt blew up politically in February, uh, I was in Rome in January at the time that the Pope gave his annual uh, address to the diplomatic corps accredited to the Holy See, made a very strong statement on religious freedom, yeah. and called out certain countries. Pakistan and Egypt in particular, uh, Pakistan because of the blasphemy laws, and Egypt because of the attacks on the Coptic Christians there. 
The next day, the Mubarak government, as it then was, withdrew its ambassador wow. from the Vatican yep. at the urging of Al-Azhar, the Sunni university there, who, if I may use the term, pitched a hissy fit uh -huh. over the pope calling them out. Right. Yeah. Now, this does not suggest that this dialogue is right. moving in a very right. positive direction right yeah. now. So we'll have to see where that goes. Yeah. But we, our ground has now been staked out. Yeah. And I think it's the right ground to stake out because it's the ground on which moderate Muslims, rational Muslims, who wish to engage, who wish to end this civil war within their own community, can work with us. Right, right. And John Paul II, where does his legacy or heritage play into this? In yeah, terms well, of I, I, let me, let me just solution. say a word about that because, in defense of him, uh, John Paul II was not naive about uh, no. about Islam. He was deeply uh, uh, learned uh, uh, as regards uh, the structure of its thought. And in that wonderful book of his, Crossing the Threshold of Hope, he's pretty plain spoken. Islam is not a religion of redemption. And, 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 and Scott, you've oftentimes pointed this out, the importance of the category of paternity, fatherhood. And for John Paul, that is, I think, the defining theme of his life, spiritual paternity. And, and I think you quote that wonderful essay he wrote back in the mid-60s on reflections on fatherhood. Father, child, love. I mean, that trinity of, of notions captures perfectly the whole mindset of this man. Everything, everything is animated by paternal care for the child. And in the last section of Threat Crossing the Threshold, he, he speaks of how original sin affects this change. It doesn't make us atheists, but what it does is it, it eclipses, it obliterates the sense of spiritual fatherhood and replaces it with a master-slave paradigm. And what, what we're facing now is not just a political enslavement like the Soviet communism. We're, we're, we're facing now uh, an ideology that is rooted in claims to reveal truth, a worldwide religious phenomenon that is a lot older and I think deadlier than Soviet communi communism ever was. And, and, uh, and that is a religion that it basically instantiates this master-slave paradigm. It's a, it's a frightening and prospect. It is, really. and uh, we, we have to apply ourselves. You know, Chesterton has that great line, it is not well for God to be alone. Uh, and thank heaven, in a Christian revelation, he's not alone, he's a community, he's a family of, yeah. of three of persons. But in Islam, this lonely desert god who swings that scimitar menacingly, he's absolutely alone, this terrifying monad. And you're right, that threat is greater than what Soviet communism posed. And, and I do think, uh, I think Pope Benedict has a, a clear sense on how to address this, not only in terms of practical reason, but also in terms of, of speculative reason, because he has made it so clear in many contexts that what is preeminent in God is not power, but love, but not a, not a love that is powerless, but a love that surpasses mere power or coercion yeah. or the divine's capacity to manipulate and dominate the creature. So let's put this in perspective of John Paul II's life and death, his holiness, his beatification, all miracles, all these things that are happening that has given him such a, an important place in history and with a real treasure of what we can draw on as we look at these uh, 
problems. I think Regis and Scott have both touched on this uh, quite accurately by raising up the theme of fatherhood. Yeah. This is a man who intuited that the world lacked a sense of fatherhood and that peculiar combination of strength and mercy that we see embodied in the father of the prodigal son, mm -hmm. etc. Uh, and he wanted to lift that up, and he managed somehow to embody this himself yeah. in a singular cross-cultural way. Uh, one of the more astonishing experiences in the 15 years I was working on these two books uh, was to go to the office for the postulation yes. uh, of the beatification cause in Rome. Right. And the postulator, who's a very fine Polish uh, canon lawyer, uh, took me to their mail room. And small little room, maybe the size of this room we're sitting in here. And on the table are letters, envelopes from all over the world, many of which, in a variety of languages, simply have written on them, Pope John Paul II, heaven. <laughs> and a stamp. Is that right? Yeah. And they yeah. managed to get them there. Yep. Heaven. Yep. That's great. So, you know, <laughs> as an okay, address. So then he says to me, what's really impressive here is how many of these come from non-Christians and non-believers. Oh. So, wow. this is not simply a cult of personality. This is someone touching deep chords of resonance in a human spirit that I think he knew had been deeply wounded by the experience of the 20th century. Holocaust, Gulag, two world wars, Cold War, Chinese famine, Ukrainian terror famine, wow. all of this stuff had ripped a shred, had shredded the fabric of humanity. And what could put that, what could knit this back together was the divine mercy. Yeah. Uh, manifested in this fatherly way. Uh, in, in one of his later, last, uh, major documents, the Church in Europe, Ecclesia in Europa, the, church, uh, the Pope uh, pondered why Europe seems to be in such a funk. Uh, you know, great material wealth, healthier than ever before, no security problems, why is everybody in a funk? He said it has to do with unprocessed guilt. If you have had this horrible 20th century, but if you've thrown and you, but you've also thrown the God of the Bible over the side, you have no one to whom you can confess, and from whom you can receive fatherly forgiveness. That he suggests may explain a lot. I think it does. Wow, there's yeah, a lot is, here to incisive. probe. But when we come yeah. back, we'll try and have some final comments and takeaways so that you can pursue these directions even more fruitfully. So stay with us. I began my career as a teacher and theologian here at Franciscan University in 1978. And that was the same year that John Paul II was elected Pope. So you might say I'm a John Paul II theologian. Uh, his, his writing, his teaching inspired me so much that I wrote a, a series in the SOAR, the International Catechetical Journal, on the encyclicals of John Paul II, and that's now been completed. 
And I just find that John Paul II is the single most person who has influenced me and inspired me most as a theologian here at Franciscan University for, for 28 years when he was Pope. I know that what's being taught here is Catholic. And that is what I believe and it's what the church teaches. We're Christians, little Christ. We don't go around always talking about Jesus, but Jesus is always at the heart of every conversation because our relationship is built on Christ the same way this school is built on Christ. After we've come here and gotten our formation and grown in our faith, we're called to go out and share the truth, Jesus Christ, with the rest of the world. Franciscan University is academically challenging and passionately Catholic. Well, we've come to the last segment, and we have a lot to talk about. We've opened a lot of issues, and they're great significance, but we'll ask each of our panelists here to kind of give us a summary go-home thought. Regis. Well, uh, you, you've done it again, George. It really is a wonderful book. Uh, the first book was uh, a blockbuster. It was powerful and rich and comprehensive, and I would have thought the last word, and now you come out with a sequel. It's not quite as thick, but it's every bit as rich uh, and, uh, and compelling, a, a marvelous uh, read. But you've got good material. I mean, the, the most visible human being that ever existed. And, and you describe him as the embodiment of the trials and tragedies and the triumphs of the 20th century for billions of people. I mean, that's an astonishing claim. I mean, I think of Scott as having made a planetary impact, but, but you're in the shadow uh, compared to this man. He towers over everybody. Uh, Solzhenitsyn, when he heard about the election of, of Pope John uh, Paul II, said, this is the most important event since the end of the First World War. Wow. This is marvelous. The most important event I mean, this is staggering. Wow. Uh, this was a kind of prophetic uh, 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 statement about yeah. what the future is likely to bring, hope for millions of people. He could see the handwriting uh, on the wall. I think for a lot of us, uh, the encounter with uh, Pope John Paul uh, was almost revelatory, you know, a kind of epiphany. And, and he changed the lives of so many people uh, who knew him. You would suddenly move in one direction and then abruptly uh, you, would, you would change direction uh, and reorientate your life, all because of this man. Yes. It was sort of like Dante uh, seeing Beatrice for the first time. You know. Or, 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 or Virgil. I mean, it was la, la, la vita nuova. A new life is begun. And all because of one man, an ordinary guy from Poland, uh, who was born the very year that Poland perhaps last experienced her freedom, or first experienced since the end of the 18th century. And, and Poland plays such a, a mysterious role uh, in modern history. I, I was struck by the fact that that was the first time that the Soviet Union had been repelled. The, the Polish army in 1920 sent Trotsky and, and the Red Army back to Russia. And then in 1939, you have Poland standing tall in the saddle against Adolf Hitler, the first European state to offer armed resistance to this guy. And then 50 years later, we have, uh, we have the, the end of European communism, and a couple of years later, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. All because of Poland, and all because of John Paul. 
what what a, what a legacy and you've you've yeah. done you've done it justice thank you wow that is <laughs> a lot scott there's some overlap here because yeah. the end and the beginning is a lot like witness to hope in the sense that you serve a political history that we all kind of feel like we know because we've lived through a part of it and yet with an augustinian realism you can see how providence has raised up a man who embodies the kind of spiritual graces and virtues that you need to withstand evil in a way that is just unsurpassed. I mean, uh, the inner Calvinist in me rejoices <laughs> to see the hand of providence work that way. But you know, you, you trace this trajectory and it goes far beyond his own death to the beatification itself. You know, I just, you think about the liturgical constellation, the alignment of May 1st, you know, being the feast of divine mercy yeah. that he established. You also see this as not only his beatification, but the feast of St. Joseph the Worker, which was more than just another feast. It was the church's stand and statement against communism. Uh, because May Day for, for, for decades had been that signal, that signal moment when you know, a communism would kind of assert its muscle in everybody's face. And so to read this and to get, you know, to get that sense once more like I did in Witness to Hope. You know, I, I, after I read Witness to Hope, I was on two retreats, three years, in three years, where that was what was read during the mealtimes. Ah. And it had such an impact. Reading it was one thing. Listening to it in the context of prayer was another. I can't wait for the end and the beginning to be read in my next retreat. Thank you for writing it. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. Well, George, it's a great achievement, and you've uh, really done so much to make sure that John Paul II's legacy is alive and present to us and that we can understand the dimensions of what he's given us. So do you have any final comments let, for us? Let me close this on a more personal note. Sure. This book is, in a sense, the fulfillment of a promise I made to John Paul II the last time we were together, which was uh, about a week and a half before Christmas 2004. We were having dinner together. And in the course of the evening, I said to him, Holy Father, if you don't bury me, uh, I want to promise you that I will finish what I started. Oh. And he was grateful to hear that. But the point of this is that the first thing he said to me when I walked into his apartment that night was, how is your mother? Oh. My father had died six weeks wow. before. He had sent a telegram for the funeral. But the first thing he asked was, yeah. how is your mother? This was a pastor wow. of pastors yes. and a great priest. But I come back to what I said in our first segment. At the bottom of all of this is radically converted Christian discipleship. When Billy Graham said the day after the Pope died that he, had been, that he John Paul II, had been the great Christian witness of the second half of the 20th century. Wow. I, I think what he was saying was this was a man who was transparent to the grace of Christ yeah. in a way that no one else had been, which is a pretty good <laughs> compliment coming from Billy Graham, who's perhaps the only yeah. other candidate for right. the title, right. uh, greatest Christian yeah. witness of the second half of the 20th century. He meant that. He meant that. And I come back again to the notion that that discipleship is the point of connection between this extraordinary life 
and all of our much more ordinary lives. Wow. Baptism gives us the capacity through God's grace to be those disciples who are transparent to Christ at work in the world as he was. Well, you can get a lot more by reading the book, The End and the Beginning. There's such richness as we talk about the life of John Paul II and his influence on our lives and our society. And we're going to send you, just for the asking, a free handout of Pope's Legacy, an interview with George Weigel that appeared on National Review Online. So you get that just by contacting us. There's no way to summarize this program. Uh, Pope John Paul II has made such an enormous impression, the largest impression I think of anyone on my life, uh, going through in terms of a model of pastor and priesthood, a model of a new evangelization, a model of where, how unity and cooperation can happen among not just Christian peoples, but even further into others who believe in God. There's so much there. There's so much richness. You cannot get it all, but you can proceed. Take the hand out, buy the book, read more, be a John Paul II devotee, because there is so much for us to learn in following his leadership and the grace that God has poured out through his papacy and now through the heritage that continues in our midst. So, till next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he show you the way of holiness and truth. May he lead you forth and may you come and join us on this campus for a conference or for studies where we can celebrate with you more of what John Paul II has meant to us. Till next time, the Lord's blessing be with you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. To receive a free handout on today's topic or to purchase a video of this show, call 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357. Email your request to presents at franciscan.edu or write to Franciscan University Presents, Franciscan University of Steubenville, 1235 University Boulevard, Steubenville, Ohio, 43952.